At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. This episode of Burnt Toast is brought to you by Green Chef, the organic meal kit delivery service. Green Chef is giving Burnt Toast listeners $50 off your first box. Just go to greenchef.us slash toast and you'll automatically receive $50 off. That's greenchef.us slash toast for $50 off. Welcome back to Food 52's Burnt Toast Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Remember being a kid and blowing bubbles in your milk? The pure satisfaction seeing them foam up, making froth like a latte? Well, bubbles are everywhere. In your sourdough starter, a can of LaCroix, a bottle of grower champagne. Our fascination with bubbles goes back centuries. Ever since bread first rose in ancient Egypt, fermented things have been associated with divinity. It wasn't until a couple centuries ago that we first started to understand how bubbles really worked and how to control their expansive effects. Why do we really love bubbles? Why don't we? They're fun, luxurious, and remind us of simpler times, even though they're quite complex. Grant Campbell is a professor of chemical engineering at the University of Huddersfield. He wrote a book about bubbles and food appropriately named Bubbles and Food, which points to evidence in ancient Egypt and beer-leavened bread as the first signs of bubbles in the culinary world. Scientifically, what is a bubble? A bubble is gas surrounded by liquid. That's it. That's, that's the whole definition of it. That's not the entirety of the definition, but that is close enough. <laughs> the reason I say is your bubble is gas surrounded by a liquid. If, if we're talking about bread, it's a pretty thick liquid. And within bread, you've got little starch granules and so on. What shape do you associate with the bubble? An orb, a circle. A sphere, yes. It's, it's, it's round. And the reason for that is surface tension pulls inwards to make the bubble round. You could have a gas space surrounded by other material, but it's not round because there isn't any liquid there to, to make it round. That, in, in, in my view, wouldn't be a bubble. What is it physically that you can tell from history uh, that there was the presence of bubbles? If we're talking about bubbles in bread, then if we look at the biblical evidence, of course, the exodus from Egypt and, and the subsequent Passover, the whole point about that is that the Jewish people in the Passover had to remember that using unleavened bread without yeast because they had left Egypt in a hurry um, such that their bread didn't have time to rise. Let's 
Let's talk about the rise in long fermented loaves. Yeast takes in sugar, uses it to provide its own food. One of the waste products is carbon dioxide, which comes out as a gas, forms bubbles, and that's how bread grows. Tara Jensen lives in Madison County, North Carolina, in a little town called Marshall. There, she runs a wood fire bakery called Smoke Signals, taking cues from the indigenous yeast all around her. As any good baker would say, it starts with a starter. Do you have sourdough starters? I do. Um, I keep two, just one, like what we'll call a liquid style, so equal parts flour and water. And I keep a rye starter as well. It's a little stiffer. Can you explain to me what a starter actually is? A starter will say sort of looks like, at least mine, kind of like a pancake batter. Pretty loose and wet, and it's generally a light flour with some warm water. And you can just start it simply on your countertop. And you'll cover it and you'll let the ingredients ferment and then eventually you'll pour some off and start to refresh it. So you'll give it back equal parts flour and water. You just want to think about it as a medium for a colony of yeast and bacteria that are going to inoculate that flour. They're going to be um, consuming simple sugars, producing gas, producing alcohol and producing acids. So we get a lot of flavor from the acids and we get some leavening um, from the gas that's being produced. How do you know a starter is working? How do you know it's alive? Bubbles. <laughs> Bubbles are the easiest way to tell. They're a sign that the yeast is metabolizing and it's producing gas and it sort of goes pervasive throughout the dough. And then when it hits a bubble that's already there, it expands that bubble. And then eventually over time, they get bigger and the dough itself is very gaseous. And then when you bake it, they sort of pop, if you will, and all that gas is going to stream out. So it's sort of, you're looking, it's almost like an archaeological dig. You know, you're looking at the imprint of a bubble that once was. Kirsten Schocke started fermenting vegetables in 1999 after her mother gave her an antique crock full of sauerkraut. Vegetables plus salt plus thyme create a rainbow larder of lacto-fermentation. Shockey runs Ferment Works on a 40-acre hillside homestead in the Applegate Valley of Southern Oregon, where she practices and teaches fermentation as an art and lifestyle. Can you kind of give an overview of the role and condition of bubbles throughout the process of fermenting vegetables? There's a first and second stage of fermentation, and then the first group that moves in is just salt in the vegetable. So the first group that moves in and just starts to get that acidity down, they're producing acid, but then the other thing they're also producing is the CO2, and that's that's what's going to cause your bubbles. And then the next families that move in, they are producing hardly any CO2. And so that's why when you get into that second stage, you're not going to get those bubbles anymore, but you're going to get that real sour flavor that, that moves in. I like to tell people that if you don't see your ferment bubbling, it doesn't mean it's not working. A good example is, you know, carrots and beets. These are highly sugared vegetables and starchy vegetables. So they're going to produce a lot of CO2. There's a lot for those bacteria to consume. What's interesting to note is that these bubbles are a preservative. CO2 is heavier than air, so it's pushing the oxygen out creating an anaerobic state to protect your food from rotting. You have to keep it cool under pressure, or else it's going to blow. We had a batch we thought was done fermenting, and so we jarred it, and um, 
it went into the fridge and it, it clearly wasn't done fermenting. The, the refrigerator didn't slow it down, but we couldn't open the jar. And at the time we had teenage um, boys at home who said, well, we'll just get the pressure out by putting a nail into the lid of the jar. And they did, and it shot it up and stuck the nail into the ceiling. <laughs> Christopher Shockey, Kirsten's husband, is a fermenter in his own right, focusing on cider making. Too much pressure can end explosively in the same way too many bubbles can turn a cool, crisp, sparkling cider into an unpalatable sensation on your tongue, far from refreshing. From a cider perspective, there's just there's two ways. You can do it naturally, or you can do it forced. You can carb it. You know, the yeast will produce the CO2, and so the trick is it's pressure and temperature, to find how much pop you're going to get. The burning on the tongue is really the the CO2 is getting in there and it's basically digging into your mucous membrane, into your layer. You probably know the difference. You've probably tasted the difference when you have something that has those really fine bubbles. You're not going to get that, that same fizz. You're just going to get that softer tickle. It made me wonder where else in the world bubbles might happen spontaneously. Historically in Selsen, Germany, sparkling water has occurred naturally spouting up from its ground springs. The city is cited as the origin to the word seltzer, a term for pure sparkling water. One day I hope to find myself in Selsen for a glass of natural bubbly water, but for now we can force carbonate water with bubbles anytime, anywhere. I called up the fine folk at Natura, a leading water purification system found in many restaurants. Heather Pruce and Davin Wickstrom of Natura believe every bubble tells a story, and adding fizz only adds to the occasion. Well, I can tell you that originally sparkling water was found in the ground, and the experience of it was thought to have a lot of health benefits, so people would travel great distances to go into the carbonated water that had been created by the earth. And then the first time someone actually created it man-made was John Priestley in the 1700s. And he was in a bar and working with beer fermentation, which created carbonation on its own. And he realized that this process could be created. And then Schwepp actually um, was the next person who commercialized it it's sparkling water is a canvas if you picture art it's a blank canvas so if you are inclined to add fruit to it you can add that to the sparkling water it's a lifestyle thing it's it's due to our millennials and gen z um there's greater access to sparkling water Schweppes existed way before millennials and the concept of soda fountains was developed in the mid-1800s by the 1950s, the U.S. had many bow-tied bartenders serving seltzer on tap with house-made syrups, akin to the modern-day mixologist. Pete Freeman is head soda jerk at Brooklyn Pharmacy, and there, he and his sister revived the old-fashioned soda fountain in a restored 1920s apothecary. Stop by and ask them how a real egg cream should be made. So when you say soda fountain, it, it, it already like brings people back to it's a wonderful life. It brings people back to the kind of the iconic images of, you know, the Rockwellian dude, you know, kid with the red hair and serving soda drinks to other little kids. We are in a hundred-year-old pharmacy. Originally, the equipment that infused water with gas that made the bubbles was only licensed to pharmacists. And the reason the pharmacists were so interested in, in it, it was because 
they were emulating the mineral waters that were coming out of the ground in Europe, in France, um, and also even in, in New York. They're not as seltzery as, as what we come to know now, but they did have you know, an effervescence to it. We're believed to be healing tonics. I think it just um, is, is a great alternative to sodas, you know, because sometimes just drinking flat water, while probably the healthiest thing you can do is drinking lots of water, isn't as exciting. It doesn't, it doesn't give you a mouthfeel. It doesn't really tickle your, tickle your fancies, um, <laughs> whereas seltzer really does. And, and I think, you know, even if, if it's just in your head and you're like, oh, this is really good, this is really refreshing, like that is, that is also really healthy for you. In Brooklyn, soda fountains were also a meeting place, even though seltzer delivery services were available all throughout New York City. Only a few delivery services are still on the scene, like the Gomberg Brothers, also known as the Brooklyn Seltzer Boys. The siphon bottles and, and the door-to-door delivery of the, of the seltzer, hauling up these crates of seltzer, you know, it could be 25 to 30 pounds, up, you know, massive flights of stairs and driving these big trucks through Manhattan. It, it was one of these, these businesses. The Jewish uh, proprietors were, were very much like, my kids will never do this. Um, and, and you see that in a lot of old Jewish businesses where they really, as the next generation came up, they, they really went out of their way to make sure that they were not in the same business. So the seltzer bottle actually kind of died out. Though sparkling water companies have made bubbly beverages widely available, Jekka Glassman, SodaStream's GM in the United States, has given the everyday customer a way to add effervescence to their home life too. SodaStream started over 100 years ago in a family business in England in 1903. And then they started making the home soda makers and that was launched in 1950s. Only towards the end of 1998, 1999, the company was purchased by its Israeli distributor, Soda Club, and then evolved into uh, SodaStream and going public in 2010. There is an Israeli soda, a sparkling soda that everyone seems to love. Ah, I know. You're, you're meaning Gazoz. <laughs> yeah. Do you know Gazoz? Of course I know Gazoz. They used to have in the past kiosks, like locations, outdoor locations, where they would serve uh, sparkling water with flavored sparkling water as you would choose and, and sell it to you by the cup. That was like a big deal in Israel many, many years ago. You know, it is a cultural thing. Uh, and actually, I was born in Latvia, in Europe. And uh, for me, having sparkling water on the table uh, was something very uh, standard. And we see that a lot in many European countries. Consuming sparkling water is the norm. Thirsty yet? When we return, more bubbles await. We'll learn the right way to pop a bottle of champagne, which bubble gums are best for blowing bubbles, and that a watch pot will eventually boil. We'll be right back with more Burnt Toast. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beat in cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. You're listening to Burnt Toast, and this episode is brought to you by Green Chef, the organic meal kit delivery service. 
We've been talking about the trend of bubbles and how they're affecting the worlds of food, wellness, and culture. Our friends at Green Chef designed gourmet meal kits based on similar food trends and seasonal ingredients and cater to specialty lifestyles such as paleo, vegan, gluten-free, and more. Simply sign up, pick up your meal plan, and that's it. Convenient deliveries will come right to your door when you want them. Green Chef is giving Burt Toast listeners $50 off your first box. Just go to greenchef.us slash toast and you'll automatically receive $50 off. That's greenchef.us slash toast for $50 off. And now, back to Burnt Toast. That sound. Would you be surprised to know that that quiet whisper is what you should be hearing when popping a bottle of champagne? Valerie Masson-Bonet and Gabe Clary work for Skernick Wines, and they're champagne advocates and importers for the French region's celebrated sparklers. I think that there is definitely a romanticism around champagne. Um, it, it was the wine drink for every king's coronation in France for over 600 years. I think the modern-day sparkling wine drinker is more interested in connecting with perhaps the people that made the wine. We've seen a, a large growth in the U.S. drinking population, wine drinking population in Champagne uh, by people making these connections as if they were making them to the people at the farmer's market. Now let's talk about that sound, that wonderful sound better known as Pet I guess it's a common misconception that you should pop a bottle of Champagne, that uh, it's a celebratory beverage, but you know, it can easily get away from you. The amount of pressure inside the bottle is pretty extreme, four to six atmospheres of pressure. So a lot of pressure, it's actually kind of dangerous and you don't want the bottle to really pop. Um, you go to a fine restaurant and a sommelier comes over to the table and they pop a bottle of champagne for you, uh, they're probably going to be pretty embarrassed. It should sound just a, a kind of an exhale is how it should sound. And the name uh, is, you know, comes from the sound that a, a nun might make farting in church. That's the, <laughs> that's the idea. It's that subtlety because you don't really want to release what's in that bottle because that's what's so precious. That's what's so special. Yeah, the, the CO2, but also the wine. You know, you don't want the wine spilling all over the place. Um, champagne's not an inexpensive beverage. So you want to make sure it only comes out when you're ready. So what are the pitfalls and danger of opening up a bottle of champagne? Oh, you can really hurt yourself, <laughs> especially when you hold it close to your face. There's numerous accounts of uh, corks hitting people in the eye and a very famous one of a Hong Kong collector um, actually on his birthday uh, killing himself with a bottle of champagne. Yeah, the cage is called a musole. Uh, it comes from the word muzzle, um, and it's to really keep the uh, keep the cork in the bottle. Um, you know, it's uh, it's very important to, for safety's sake to have this on the, covering the cork. When you open up a bottle, how quickly should you serve it? I mean, what are the conditions champagne should be best enjoyed in? Well, it should be open cold, for sure. But, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for Valerie here, but when we're hanging out drinking champagne, um, you know, it's not a, a race to the bottom of the bottle. You know, the, the idea is to open the bottle, taste it when it's cold. You know, it has to be cold so that the cork doesn't go flying out of the bottle. Um, as the champagne warms up, the atmosphere, you know, pressure inside is, is greater. You chill it down so it's not, um, uh, so it doesn't explode. Um, one, one thing that I think both Gabe and I would recommend is drinking your champagne out of a regular white wine glass. The champagne flutes were also sort of a product of that luxury marketing era and 
they're, they do make things very difficult to smell. And once you kind of open up and allow the champagne more surface area to react with air, uh, you get more activity, you get more activity on the surface, and that releases more of the phenolic compounds that you'll smell. Yeah, absolutely. The flute was really designed to do one thing, and that's to, to slow the release of bubbles. So, you know, it's it looks beautiful in the glass, but as Valerie said, really, a white wine glass or a proper big, wide champagne flute is really what you want to be drinking champagne out of. I sat for a brew with beer writer Joshua M. Bernstein. Do you guys have a glass for this? or We got heady about our bubbly expectations. No one really does want to flap here. I mean, you look at Cascale, which is served at sort of more cellar temperature for around 50, 55 degrees, and typically with lighter you know, lighter carbonate, fewer bubbles in there. And so you hear people be like, what's wrong with this beer? It's flat. I mean, I think American consumers are conditioned to expect things to be incredibly fizzy and incredibly cold, which do have benefits, but it's not a one-size-fits-all model for all beers. But there are standards, and we can talk Bavarian beer law if you want, but one thing that people expect is bubbles. Yeah, with the bubbles on there too, when you get that nice head, some people think a head in the beer is not really, there's somebody's being cheated out of extra beer, but no, the head really captures a lot of the volatile aroma, so your beer is going to smell better, and we drink with our eyes, we drink with our nose before we drink with our mouth. What the foam does, it captures a lot of the yeast and the particles and all these small little infinitesimal things that you don't really, you know, that are really crucial to a beer, but are not readily apparent. If you have a wheat beer or an oat beer, they tend to promote head retention in a much better way. So with a, you know, a banana scented Hefeweizen, and a great beer to drink in the summer, it's going to have that great big poofy head that looks like a chef's cap on there too. And some other beer styles may not have as big of a head. You talk about a, you know, a Coors Light or a domestic American lager, it's going to be really fine, fizzy bubble but the head's not really going to stick around there for a long time. So what beer makes you the burpiest? Oh, uh, I don't know. You know, any, the burp. if you drink any beer, you're going to burp, basically. If you pour the beer in the glass and you get rid of some of the bubbles, you're decanting it a little bit. But if you drink any, you know, any super highly carbonated lager, lots of them, you know, anything you're drinking on a hot day, if you have two or three of them in half an hour, 45 minutes, you're going to burp. <laughs> I had asked Grant Campbell again about his take on texture. Bubbles are such a visual gesture, but how do they feel? They just make things palatable and luxurious. You can pour some cream, but if you whip cream in order to to make it aerated, it just is smoother and more special. Bread, if you didn't aerate your bread, you would be eating a brick. In terms of its influence on history, and on technology, and on society, and on the development of civilization, and so on, there is no other food that's as important as bread. Um, The reason for that is because of of the risen nature of bread, because of its bubbles. Um, Therefore, there is an argument, and you can't argue with the logic, um, that bubbles are the world's most important ingredient. Let's chew on this. Bubbles are the world's most important ingredient. But are they really necessary? I've always related gum to bubbles. Deborah Schimberg founded Glee Gum using all natural ingredients, but to her, bubble gum is more of a flavor than a function. Chewing gum originally was made from chicle. So you've seen the word chiclets, and it comes from that uh, Spanish word chicle. You chew out the sweetener and flavoring, and what's you're left with is the gum base, or there's a technical term, which is called cud. <laughs> nice to know that we all look like cows. Chewing gum base really is a combination of rubber and wax. 
and neither of those sound particularly appetizing. However, when you put the two together, wax and rubber, really what you come up with is gum-based. In generally speaking, synthetic artificial gum-based and artificial gum is using a lot of elastic in their gum base, and so that's why it blows bubbles easily. Our gum, Glee gum, naturally has some resilience to it. Uh, I'll call it that characteristic, which makes it possible to blow bubbles. What's the joy in blowing bubbles, and why is that so important as part of you know being a piece of gum? You know, I am not an expert on why it's joyful to blow a bubble. I mean, any more than I'm sure you are, it's fun. What's interesting is that it doesn't really serve any nutritional purpose, right? It's just an activity that um, makes us feel good, sort of like playing with a fidget spinner. Chewing gum, the chewing gum industry is only maybe since 1890 or so, 1880, 1890, the indigenous Mayan people uh, who harvested chicle use the chicle for lots of other purposes, but there is evidence that they also chewed it as well. Indigenous American people chewed on uh, spruce resin, for example. But people also, folks in, in South America, chew on coca leaves. Native Americans used to chew tobacco, and, and many uh, baseball players still chew tobacco. Um, People in India and that part of the world chew something called betel nut, B-E-T-E-L. And people in uh, Africa chew on something called cut, K-H-A-T, which has a kind of slightly relaxing effect as well. So I think that around the world, chewing is a pleasurable activity and making bubbles is even more so. That's how I don't have any more expert opinion than that. Bubbles may be fun to make, but are they beneficial to the body? Stephanie Clark, a registered dietitian with C&J Nutrition, says probably not. There aren't any conclusive health benefits, plus chewing causes you to swallow air, which can lead to gas. Now, fermented foods do contain probiotics, which can improve digestion, but that's not because of the bubbles. Interestingly, we as humans may be alone in enjoying bubbles at all. Other mammals don't seem to like carbonated beverages or bubbles like humans do. There was a piece of research from the Monell Research Institute, a not-for-profit research institute that studies smell and taste. It might be a protective mechanism for detecting like not-so-good food because it emits carbon dioxide. So like rotting food emits carbon dioxide and therefore animals would stay away from that. But as humans, we've sort of evolved to realize that bubbles can be safe. <laughs> I want to end on more of a savory note. Sarah Gavigan of Otaku Ramen in Nashville is a ramen master. She's learned from the best, and her tonkatsu broth is boiled to perfection. You know, it's all about the process. So your your only three elements are water, bones, and heat. That's all you have to work with. If you're going to make a traditional ramen stock, there's no mirepoix, there's nothing else. The first half of making tonkatsu is about extracting the impurities. The second half is about extracting the goodness. And each part takes equally as long. So that is what makes tonkatsu so difficult. And where, you know, you're, if you're going to make it in a pot at home, you're looking at a 12-hour situation. And so by the time you get to probably hour eight, 
that's when you're going to see that marrow cloud. And so you're getting, at, at, by hour eight, you're starting to wonder, is this ever going to happen? And so when it blooms, it's like a feat of triumph. <laughs> and it's, it's so beautiful to see this otherwise oily, murky water become like milk. And it's, it's kind of mind-blowing because at that point, not only do you have the marrow, but you'll continue to get this really beautiful, opaque chalkiness out of the color as all of the soft tissues melt, all of the cartilage begins to melt, and then you decalcify the bones. That's a very final stage of making a tenkatsu is when the calcium is literally leached from the bone. And the way that you know that is simply that it looks decalcified. It looks like a fossil bone when you pull it out. I can remember when I was uh, making this broth in my house and I have a big open kitchen and it's like the living room and the kitchen are the same room. And I have a, you know, nine-year-old daughter who keeps screaming, mom, it smells like gym socks. And I just keep trying to like put off any interaction with my husband because I know that he is so upset with me that I am so focused on this and nothing else. And I literally pace around the kitchen for damn near eight hours going, is this working? Am I doing this right? Am I just, should I just dump this and start over? I have no idea other than the fact that my house smells like the inside of a hockey bag. And all of a sudden it just, blooms you see it happen and the light bulb goes off and you say okay what time is it where are we right now with timing and so for me that moment is just always a triumph i hope tonkatsu ramen is a bubble that never bursts really i hope that you appreciate bubbles in the same way that i do a luxury as simple as blowing through a straw in your milk or as complex as the many modes of fermentation the next time you see a bubble in food Just think, you're seeing ancient history, and you never know when it's going to... Thank you to Food52, my co-producer Jordan Werner, and Nick Rad and Mike Kamate at HeadGum for recording. Music by Joshua Rule Dobson. We're calling Episode 5 of Food52's Burnt Toast Jolie Laid, or Ugly Beautiful, with fields of imperfect produce and offcuts that never make it to the shelves, there are cooks and companies embracing these cast asides. In an Instagrammable world, why are more of us embracing so-called ugly food? Find out on the next episode of Burnt Toast. <laughs>